I invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to Titus chapter 2. We're going to be looking together at verse 15 in Titus 2 this morning. I'm so thankful to sing that song before uh, the last time in this year that I opened the word of God and have the privilege to preach to you because the longer the year has gone on, the more my reflection on the year has been less about the difficulties and challenges, though they have been great, uh, but more on the faithfulness of God to those who look unto Jesus. In fact, I think uh, in my own life, uh, it has been a period of, of spiritual growth, a period that I'll look back on the rest of my life and I will not be thankful for a pandemic, absolutely not, I pray it is gone and quickly, but thankful for what God has done in my life through uh, the midst of what we have been facing together. I think he's made our staff uh, better leaders, and I think that uh, we've come out of this or are in the midst of coming out of this as a stronger church. He has been faithful. This morning, we want to look at this final verse in this series that we've been looking at called Christmas Clarity from Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15. I'm going to read the entire section and we'll look at verse 15 together this morning. I ask you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Titus chapter 2 beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. Your kingdom knows no end. And Lord, I pray that as we come before you today, that we have eager hearts to receive what you have for us that we would be a people who understand that no external circumstance can thwart our mission. That nothing can keep us from being those people who live for the kingdom in the here and now. And Lord, we ask for that. And we ask, Lord, that You make us faithful stewards of Your great blessings. Good stewards of Your faithfulness. Lord, grant us boldness and confidence, hope, and joy. And we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's a challenge to live as the church of Jesus Christ when the government is hostile to biblical faith. When the surrounding culture is at odds with the moral commitment of lived-out biblical faith, especially in regards to 
uh, sexual ethics and sexual immorality. It's a challenge to live as the church of Jesus Christ when the cultural ethos is one of saying whatever you have to say to make yourself look better in the moment. A culture of lies and half-truths and fake news. It's a challenge to live as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ when many people speak the language of faith and yet what they mean is something that's mixed with all kinds of cultural standards and pop religious beliefs mixed in. Now that may sound familiar, but what I'm talking to you about this morning is the situation that the Apostle Paul is equipping his son in the faith, Titus, for ministry in the, on the Isle of Crete as he serves the church and, or the churches there. He is equipping him in a very difficult time to lead this church toward gospel faithfulness and through, uh, to gospel clarity. You see, it's a time where Nero is emperor of the Roman Empire, and he is a cruel persecutor of all kinds of people, including Christians. And the people he's ministering to have, have been swallowed up by the idea that you have to take care of yourself and do what's best for you in the moment. There are people that are known for self-serving lies. In Titus 1.12 it says that Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So much so that to, to say to Cretanize is to say to lie in this cultural context. So we have an overarching governmental hierarchy that is persecuting and at odds with the church. And we have a cultural context that reflects the self-serving, self-referential uh, lies of the moment. He, he goes on to say that, that people among them in the church are, are starting to follow myths and turning from the truth. And there are many who profess Him, but deny Him with their works. About this cultural context and in reference to the government, uh, the only thing Titus has to say is in chapter 3, verses 1 through... The only thing Paul has to say to Titus in chapter 3, 1 through 2 is this. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now... You see, there's an issue of what Paul has to correct in this church that has to be the primary focus. And when Paul is dealing with this situation, something says at the very beginning of this, this letter is very important because it meets the, the need of the moment. In chapter 1, verse 2, in Paul's introduction, he says this, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now, not only is this cultural context one of, of lies and of promiscuity, it's also the idea that there are multi-gods and you, you try to figure out how to appease the gods. It's, it's like a religious game. And yet Paul says in here, no, what you have to teach this congregation what you have to stand for yourself as you minister in the midst of an incredibly difficult situation 
is that the God who never lies will show us how to be the church, a faithful church, in every situation and in every generation. How do you meet a culture of lies? Well, you root your life in the truth of the God who never lies. And at the heart of Paul's message of this God who never lies is a God who has reached down to sinful humanity and given the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why when you read this letter, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, is the heart of the message. It's echoed again in the passage in chapter 3 you heard read earlier in the service. But, but chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, is the very heart of all that he is saying. What you have to get right, what you have to understand is the gospel message. It is the good news of Jesus Christ that brings clarity. And fundamental to getting the gospel message right, he says, is always remember the incarnation. Always remember what we celebrate at Christmas. The grace of God has appeared. This is not some distant faith. This is a God who has come down to us. And He says He's appeared bringing salvation to all men. Preach the gospel to all. And he, the grace of God has appeared training us. Therefore, we are always to be growing in grace. And the gospel who has appeared in the incarnation is the God who is going to appear in His sure return. Therefore, we are waiting in hope in this fallen world and we are serving our King as citizens of another land, citizens of heaven, and we are waiting from the revelation of grace in the incarnation to the fulfillment of that in the revelation of glory in His second coming. That's where we're living. And it is the God who does not lie who has come and spoken to us this word of the Gospel. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And then there's verse 15. And it's a bridge verse. It takes us from chapter 2 and connects us with chapter 3. And in chapter 3, he's going to focus on ethics for living faithfully in a pagan world. How do you make sense of that? How do you live in relation to persecuting government and other people? But this is the bridge. This sets us up to think rightly about those things. It's tethered to all that he said about the gospel. We've got to get that right before we can think about the other things. And the first thing I would point out is he tells us we must declare grace. Declare grace. Look at just simply the first three words of verse 15. Declare these things. The word declare here could be translated proclaim. It could be just translated speak. It's a present active command. It's something to do and to keep on doing and something that is to mark the totality of our lives. Declare, proclaim, speak. It's the idea of, of teaching that is consistent. The general teaching of the truth. Teaching, preaching, instruction with a sense of urgency. That's the reason why you get, instead of speak here, declare in this translation. Declare these things. Preach these things. 
teach these things, instruct in these things, and to do it with a sense of urgency. What are these things? Well, most clearly, it's what he has just said. Declare that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Preach the gospel to all men. Declare that the grace of God trains us in righteousness and how to deny ungodliness. Declare that we grow only in grace and the only obedience is the obedience of faith. Declare that He is coming again. That there is a sure return. That we are waiting for our blessed hope. That He will return and consummate His kingdom. Declare these things, these, these gospel things, this, this framework by which we're to understand our lives. Declare these things of the God who never lies. Preach the gospel. But notice it also says here, declare these things, exhort and rebuke. You see, declare, exhort, and rebuke are all present active commands. Something we're commanded as believers to do always. And to keep doing always. And the idea is not that declare is over-exhort and rebuke, but declare these things, exhort these things, and rebuke these based on these things, is what he's saying here. And there's a little nuance in each one of these words. The, the word translated exhort means to call alongside. And that's the reason sometimes it's translated encourage. Encouragement. The idea carries the sense of pleading, persuasion, that you aren't indifferent, that you aren't just teaching uh, facts that are true and walking away but rather you are teaching what is true and you are pleading and persuading for the people who hear you to believe. Come alongside. Believe these things with us. Walk in this way. And then there's the negative. To reprove. Sometimes translated rebuke as it is here. The idea of reprove. Exhort is positive. Rebuke is negative. The need with rebuking is to convince of sin, to correct what is wrong, to bring someone on the right path. And by the way, declaring grace means all of this. Declaring grace always means that we must be a people who declare the gospel. And we must be a people who encourage based on the gospel and plead with people to respond to the gospel. But it always means, as well, we must clarify the reality of sin. I meet some parents with their children and what they call parenting by grace is just rampant permissiveness. And somehow, way, they've come to believe that grace is just to, to be permissive and to not correct anything. It's not grace at all. Grace always calls sin, sin. In fact, the law is a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. The only way we know of our need of grace is to know the standard that God has given that we do not meet. So a parent that corrects their children and points them to the gospel is communicating a culture of grace. You correct your child and teach them what sin is, and then you embrace them. You don't reject them. You're embodying the reality and teaching them that sin will be punished. But by God's grace, you still love them. And an even greater reality 
is that in spite of everything they've done, Christ has died for them. And that's where they ultimately need to take the reality of their sin. You see, all of this is about declaring God's grace. William Barclay years ago said, the Christian message is no opiate that sends men to sleep. It is not comforting assurance that just simply says everything will be all right. It is rather the blinding light of truth which shows men themselves as they are and God as he is. Paul's message here is first for Titus the preacher, the one who leads the congregation, the one who proclaims the truth of Scripture, that he must be one who declares grace without compromise. But by extension, this is the, the identity that is supposed to be in the church in Crete, and by extension, us this morning. Do not overcomplicate what God has called us to do, who God has called us to be. You don't ever have to ask yourself the question, should I be someone who speaks grace? Should I be someone who preaches the gospel? Should I be one who proclaims good news? Never do you have to ask yourself that. Nothing you face ever changes that. Should I speak of the God who came to us to die? Yes. Should I speak that that God who came to us to die is raised from the dead and He's returning again? Yes. Should I speak of the reality of sin and all of us are accountable to God and the only way of forgiveness is through that God who came to us and is crucified, dead, and buried, and resurrected, and returning? Yes! Don't overcomplicate it. We overcomplicate usually for two reasons. One is that we just don't want to do something and so we try to complicate it up because that always keeps us, well, I don't really get it yet, so I can't move forward. My kids do this all the time when they don't want to do something. I just don't understand. Yeah, they just don't want to do it. But it's not just kids who do that, is it? And the second reason, we overcomplicate it because we fear doing something. Well, it's just not time. I really don't get it enough. I, I'm just not sure. And the reason there is not the avoidance of overcomplicating just because we don't want to do it. It's overcomplicating because we want to self-protect. By the way, that's the very reason we need to do it. Because what we are saying when we do, what we know that we are to do when the feeling in our gut says, I don't want to, is what we are saying with our lives is Jesus is Lord. That we believe this good news of the gospel. But often our unwillingness is a misunderstanding of the next phrase. Or a fear of the next phrase. You see, we are to declare grace and we are to do it with authority. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke, now, here's the next phrase we're looking at. With all authority. The idea is to put something in its proper order and place. There is somebody who knows the proper order and place of things, so they speak authoritatively about it. You'll remember that the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching. Matthew 7.29 says this, For He was teaching them as one having authority, and not as their scribes. The mark of Jesus' teaching was that it was authoritative in a way they were not used to. 
Now, we, are, we live in a culture that says it's not fond of authority. At least that's what it says. And we are all affected by that. We're supposed to sort of equivocate everything we say. Not say anything is absolute. We have ideas, we have opinions, we have thoughts. We want to share with people. But to say, no, this is true. And this is true for all people everywhere. It's true for me and it is true for you, whether you recognize it or not. We're a little bit shy about doing that. Because the messaging in the culture says, oh, nobody wants that. I always ask my preaching class this question when I teach at Southern Seminary. Is preaching you identifying with the congregation and talking about God? Or is preaching you identifying with God and speaking on His behalf to the congregation? They're a little bit antsy about saying it's the latter. But that's what the Scripture says that it is. They, they, they're a lot more comfortable saying, oh, I'm identifying with the people and talking about God. After all, who am I to say that I would be one who speaks on behalf of God? And then I say, do you agree with this assertion? The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. It's from a document, really old, called the Second Helvetic Confession. And it's what evangelicals have always believed about preaching. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. That in faithful preaching, you don't hear from the preacher, you hear from Christ. You see, that kind of language makes us uncomfortable. They say, well, yeah, but so whatever I say, uh, I speak with the authority of God? No, absolutely not. We all understand how this works. We are ambassadors. The one who preaches is a lead ambassador. He's been given certain things that he has to, the ability to say authoritatively. But as an ambassador, it's a derived authority from another place. We have ambassadors of uh, the United States to various parts of the world. If we send an ambassador to a part of the world and he knocks on the door and he says, listen, I've come to deliver a message on behalf of the United States that if you don't stop doing this, or if you don't do this, then this is going to happen. He doesn't knock on the door and say, well, who in the world am I to come and talk to you today? I mean, my dad was a plumber. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, who, who am I? But, you know, I'm going to say something, and I know it's going to sound really kind of over the top, but, uh, you know, on behalf of the U.S., uh, I've, I've, they've told me to say this. That's not the way an ambassador works. Because he's not knocking on the door in his own authority. He's delivering a message. And the authority behind his message is the government of the United States of America. So he's not there on his own accord. So he doesn't sound mealy-mouthed, who am I? He's been given something to say. And inasmuch as he says it, he has the authority of the country that sends him to say it. If he says something that he wasn't sent to say, he has no authority to do it, and he'll be held accountable for it. So if he knocks on the door and says, you know, I can get a sweet deal out of this. The government of the United States has said to do this, this, and this, and they've said that before I leave today, you need to give me a million dollars. If the government didn't tell him to say that, then when he gets back, and they find out he's in trouble and he might end up in jail. Why? He's an ambassador. Well, he didn't have the authority to say something he wasn't sent to say. 
as much as the preacher faithfully preaches the Bible, God has ordained this witness that people would hear from Him. That He speaks as an ambassador. But the same is true for all of us as we speak the truth of the Scripture. It's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And why it says in Romans 10.14, how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear Him without a preacher? Authority. Where the Scriptures speak, we are to speak with unapologetic authority, granted by God in His Word. Often people are just waiting for someone to speak to them as if they actually believe what they're saying to the very core of their being. This is why a lot of people gravitate toward false teachers. You can turn on TV and see some of the most ridiculous nonsense in the world in the name of Jesus. But they know enough to know that you've got to act like you really believe it. Oftentimes, the teacher teaching the junk on TV acts like he believes what he's saying more than the preacher that somebody hears every week. We are to speak with the Bible in our hand with authority. Not just the preacher, but all of us. We have the very words of God. We have the gospel. We have the words that God has given. This authoritative message of grace. And it is delivered by a humble servant. Now, a lot of you don't think of humility and authority as you think about them as mutually opposed to one another. Nothing could be farther from the truth. You can't be humble without having a sense of authority. It is the security you have in something beyond you that allows you to be humble to other people. If you think that it's all about you and you've got to provide everything for you, I guarantee you, you will not be humble. But we who are in Christ are people who say, I have nothing that matters ultimately that I have not been given. But I have been given it. And this message that I responded to that is true is the only hope for everyone else as well. You see, this is how you can love your enemies, how you can bless those who persecute you, while at the same time never compromising the truth you speak to them. This is what God has called us to. This is who we're to be. We do have an authoritative message. We are to declare these things with authority. We are to be the people, I may not know this about this. I may know not, not know what this, why this is happening. I may not know why this is happening in the political world. I may not, but this I know. But I wonder if people listening in on us for the past year, what are the things that we sound most authoritative about? It's an important question. 
declare these things. Declare grace with authority. And that leads to the next thing. And confidence. You see, that's where our confidence comes from. The authority of what God has done in the gospel. So confidence comes from the grace of what God has done and how this is the only hope for the entire world. Look at 15 again. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Then he says, let no one disregard you. It's a present act of command again. Let no one disregard you. The little word translated disregard is a word that means to think around you. Uh, let, let no one distract you. Let no one evade you. Let no one ignore you. Uh, some other translations of this, the New Century Version, let no one treat you as unimportant. The, 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 the paraphrase, the message, let no one put you down. You see, this is, this is in your role as an ambassador. Let no one be dismissive of what you say. Now, now, why is it important for Paul to add this to Titus and for the church in Crete to embrace this vision and to live with this sense of confidence? How many times have you been silent because you feared how a person was going to respond? How many times have you been silent because you were afraid of being called closed-minded, harsh, or libertine or crazy or a fanatic or whatever else. How many times do you close your mouth so you fit in better? And so the person who is going to respond in a way that you think they're going to respond in a way, you don't really know, but you think they're going to respond in a way, are responding in that way to shut your mouth and it works, so they're disregarding you. They're happy to talk about this, 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 where there's not, it's not authoritative, we just have opinions. But they want to disregard what you have to say about ultimate things, and you play along. It says, don't ever do it, Titus. Don't ever change the message. Don't ever water it down. Don't ever compromise it. Don't ever tell people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. Because to do so is to lose sight of your role as an ambassador. You see, if you are the ambassador who's sent to that country again, and you're knocking on that door and you're thinking, they don't really want to hear what I'm here to say. So I'm just going to change it. I'm going to soften it. I'm going to say something less than what I was sent to say. Because I don't want that look on their face and that I don't want to hear what they have to say because they're not going to like my message. And so I'm just going to not say what I was sent to say. I'm going to say a, a watered-down version of what I was sent to say. They would be fired as an ambassador. They have a message to deliver, and so do we. Let no one disregard you. Don't ever, ever simply marginalize yourself because you're afraid of the response. The truth is, people are actually more hungry to hear the truth than you think they are. Our call is obedience, the obedience of faith. We aren't always uh, sort of calculating out what it's going to cost us to be obedient because then we are Lord and our cost calculator is Lord and not Jesus. We are called to do things because 
we are to do them as his ambassador. You see, the call here is to have a sense of holy confidence. That ambassador who goes to the country on behalf of the U.S. feels as though and understands that the, 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 the government of the U.S. is going to back him up. We are to know that what we do in obedience to Christ with the right sort of gospel heart is what is most important and what will bless others most and bless us most, no matter what we think, how they're going to respond in the moment. One of my old profs, Danny Aiken, used to call what we have Christ confidence. It's another way to say humility. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great English Baptist preacher, says, What is humility? The best definition I have ever heard that I have ever met with is this to think rightly of ourselves. Humility is to make a right estimate of oneself. It is no humility for a man to think less of himself than he ought, though it might rather puzzle him to do that. Some persons, when they know they can do a thing, tell you they cannot, but you do not call that humility. A man is asked to take part in some meeting and he says, No, I have no ability. Yet if you were to say so yourself, he would be offended that you said it. It's not humility for a man to stand up and deprecate himself and to say he cannot do this or that or the other when he knows he's lying. It is not humility to underrate yourself. Humility is to think of yourself, if you can, as God thinks of you. It is to feel that if we have talents, God has given them to us. And to let it be seen that, like a freight in a vessel, they tend to sink us low. The more we have, the lower we ought to lie. Humility is not to say, I have not this gift, but it is to say, I have the gift and I must use it for my Master's glory. Do you hear that? God has given them to us. God has called you to be an ambassador. When you say, I have no sure message, or I'm unwilling to say a sure message, that's not humility, that's pride. That's self-protection. Humility declares grace with authority. Martin Luther used to say, I try to live as though Christ died yesterday, rose again today, and will return tomorrow. Living in light of those appearings. Feeling the sense of it. We put too much confidence in what other people think about us. We put too much confidence in, in our ability to do and to say and to know certain things. We put too little confidence in just simply obedience, present obedience, and the authority that we've been given. Christmas clarity. It's pretty simple. Declare grace with authority and confidence until He comes. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this portion of your word. I thank you that you've spoken to us. I thank you, Lord, that you've given us a sure word. And Lord, I pray that we would declare it. That we would never act as though we are ashamed to be ambassadors.
but Lord, that you would give us a, a holy confidence to live in these days and all days knowing that what we have is true now and forever and can never be taken. And may we want to tell, may we long to tell people from every tribe, tongue, and nation beginning here in Lexington that great truth. So they too could declare grace with authority and confidence. Oh Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name.